Good morning, Redeemer. Our scripture this morning is 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7 through verse 36, page 346 in the Pew Bibles. Please feel free to stand for the reading of the word. Page 346, 1 Chronicles 16, beginning at verse 7. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O oh, offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. 
Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Amen. Hey, so I, I don't think I need to say it. This is an absolutely uh, beautiful passage. One that gives us a lot of opportunities to um, hear and experience and learn and kind of get saturated in the vocabulary of what it means to invoke the Lord and thank the Lord and praise the Lord. This is actually where we ended last week, uh, talking about as David put these uh, orders in place to call upon the name of the Lord and invoke him, remember him, to thank him, to praise him. And this song gives us an unbelievable window into what that sounds like. It gives us a grammar for that. And I, I imagined coming out of last week, that that's what I was going to be talking about this morning. Uh, but I felt particularly led this week to take us in a little bit of a different direction. So I want to do this morning is spend the majority of our time looking at the section that particularly brings us face to face with the concept of remembering God's covenant. If you look at verse 12, the, the psalmist here invites us to remember. And then again in verse 15, he says, remember his covenant forever. And what it looks like to remember God's covenant faithfulness, what it means to invoke the Lord. I, as I prepped this week, I was struck with the need, I think, to spend our time in verses 12 to 17, where the chronicler tells us to remember God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically the promise to give them the land of Canaan uh, the, the, to the descendants. And I felt to, led to do this for two reasons. Number one, to stop and take a moment to give us a framework as the people of God for what it means to read and understand the Old Testament promises. So I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but one of the things that I find really regularly in pastoral ministry kind of over the years is people regularly don't know what to do with these kind of promises, right? They, 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 they read through a passage like this and they go, what am I supposed to make of this, right? There, there's several options that often get, out, get put out there. Number one is I live with some general level of ambivalence, right? I disregard them. I don't really think about it. I, I don't really ask many questions. I just kind of read through it. It's part of my Bible reading plan. I check it off and I move on. That's one option. 
The second option is a misapplication of a uh, theological system that is held by a lot of Christians and uh, a lot of like really Jesus-oriented, Jesus-loving people who uh, would give like a misapplied sense of how to understand these where, where you may have heard something along the lines of, anytime you read about Israel in the Old Testament, just say the church, just write the church, right? Like this is the church, just put that in there and what do you deal with that there, right? So that's how you make sense of it. Or there's others who have some sense of more like strict literalism to these passages and they look for some sort of future fulfillment, right? Where there's, there's a day coming when God will fulfill these promises, right? And I wanna give some guardrails to us this morning, some handholds uh, to navigate some of these questions. And sadly, you know, we don't have sessions and sessions and sessions to deal with this. So this is gonna be a cursory flyover. Uh, but, so you're gonna have to bear with me there. Give me a lot of grace. Um, but I actually think all three of these options don't give us a sufficient understanding of what the Bible invites us to as it relates to these promises. So I hope to make sense of that a little bit. Somewhat, this is like a language that you have to learn and then you have to dive into. So one of the things you're gonna hear me say I hope a bunch of times today is you got to read this thing cover to cover again and again and again and again and again and again and again. You got to get in it. You got to live in it. You got to let it saturate your mind. You got to familiarize yourself with the story of what's going on in order to make sense of how does God make sense of these promises? Because that's what really matters, right? How does, what does God say about them? Not what do like we come up with or what we, we have ideas about. So that's one of the reasons. But the second reason is I think what's currently happening in our world, as you watch the news in the land of Israel with the conflict with Israel and Palestine, it's a really important moment for us to navigate what the word of God says in order to shape our thinking our prayers and our affections in these moments. Okay, so here's a, here's a tension. Our pulpit is not meant to be driven by current events, right? This isn't a really regular thing, uh, but the severity of this situation and I think some of the potential outcomes that may come from it, I think are an important case study for us in seeking to understand to know God's heart, right? A few weeks ago, we talked about in 1 Chronicles 12, the sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew how to respond, right? Like we wanna, we wanna be a people that are aware of the seasons we're living in, what's God's heart related to them and how do we respond accordingly? So I think this, looking at this and try to making some applications, uh, not only teaches us about the situation in Israel at the moment, but also how do we react, quote unquote, to the world around us in a heightened state of anxiety that's filling the world with confusion when it comes to just about everything, right? Do you all feel that? Right, there's a sense of confusion just about everywhere. The anxiety that is clouding the world and how we make sense of the world is really heightened. And I think this could be a case study for us to go, how do we think biblically about things? How do we assess things according to the word of God? How do we operate with a spirit of patience and grace and categorize and understand things 
uh, together. So we're going to try to do all of that. I'm going to pray because we got our work cut out for us. And I told Ricky this morning, he's supposed to preach next week. I said, you might get pushed a week because we may have to do two weeks here. So we'll go until we're done and then we'll pick up where we need to pick up. But let's ask God for grace and uh, we'll dive in. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is a light to our feet. It is a lamp to our path. It makes sense of everything. God, I ask that you would come and speak to us this morning. Would you allow us to receive the gift of your presence? God, would you show forth what it is that you desire? God, and I ask uh, for a grace particularly in the speaking of your word, God, I ask for um, just a, a spirit of clarity, God, that you would allow me to say things that are in accordance with your heart. And let us receive those things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want you to go to page two. You can, you can get all that stuff on your own. We're going to just start with remembering God's covenant faithfulness. So like I said, verses 12 and 15, this song that is placed here invites the people of God to remember, which is the same word that was used in 1 Chronicles 16.4 when we talk about invoking the Lord, right? So you could highlight the word invoke and then correlate it to the word remember that we see in verse 12 and 15. So invoking the Lord is calling into remembrance his fidelity to his promises, his nature, who he is, and reminding him of the things he's promised. In essence, letter B, we see the nature of remembering is designed to call to mind the covenant faithfulness of God. His covenant faithfulness speaks of his unfailing commitment to perfectly fulfill his word. One of the other things you could put here that you're going to see throughout the New Testament is when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, it's also one of the aspects of the righteousness of God is God's fidelity to his own word. So when Paul says the righteousness of God is being made known in Christ Jesus, he is saying God is being supremely and ultimately faithful to everything he promised. And I'll demonstrate how is what he's doing in several of his letters. But so we want to talk about what does it mean to look at the covenant faithfulness of God. In this song, which is uh, just quoted from portions of Psalm 105, the people are exhorted to remember that God has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he had been faithful to watch over his word, to establish it, and to fulfill it through every season of their history, right? This, uh, the part of Psalm 105 that we don't get quoted here is uh, that they are called to remember God's commitment to watch over his word. So as Psalm 105 unfolds, he's saying, you made these promises to the fathers and even when it looked like you weren't working, you were accomplishing your purposes. When you sent Joseph into slavery in Egypt, the word of God wasn't inactive in that moment. You were bringing forth your purposes even in that. 
is the greater context there. This happened, letter D, through God's sovereign care, even in seasons when it appeared that it would not come to pass or it appeared that God had somehow overlooked or forgotten his promises. So the act of remembering God's word and his care over his word, including remembering that in seasons of apparent failure, the word of the Lord is testing his people, is meant to do something in us. It's meant to invigorate us with faith that God will continue to accomplish his word and bring every one of his purposes to pass, right? This is one of the primary reasons we're called to remember, right? God does not need to be reminded, you do, I do, right? One of the primary reasons we're called to remember is because as we rehearse God's word and his faithfulness to his word, we are invigorated in our moment to be full of faith that God is currently watching over his word to accomplish it and establish it in fullness. Look at letter F here. So to do this, to set our table today, I think we gotta know the story of the Bible, right? If we're gonna, we're gonna talk about God's covenant faithfulness, I think we gotta give a 50,000 foot flyover of the narrative of the scripture. And let me just give a little quick plug for something. If you do not have a Bible reading plan, get one. And if you don't know where to start, in January, we have a group of guys who last year they did this as well. I think there were about 50 of our people that did it. Nathan Wilhoyt puts together these unbelievable plans of how to get through the Bible in a quick chunk of time. I wanna invite everyone to watch for that. We'll, we'll, we'll make it available on Church Center of how to get in and jump in and be a part of it. But read the Bible, right? One of the ways we remember God's promises and remember God's faithfulness and remember God's uh, works is you have to know them. And if you don't spend time saturating your life in the scripture and you don't familiarize yourself with them, you aren't going to know what this is like in your own life. But let me give you a flyover here. Okay, Genesis 1 to 3. God created everything in order to fill the whole world with his glory. He created everything for a purpose. There is an intentionality behind God's creation. Why do things exist? Because God desired to create something and create a, an entire cosmos that he could saturate and fill with the knowledge of his glory. That's why he created. That's why he set out to create. That's what birthed creation in his heart. He had a desire, an end, a goal for it. He wants to fill the whole world with his glory. In order to accomplish this plan, God created a man and a woman in his image with the ability to live in relationship with him. That's live in like an intimate communion with him. And he gave them a task to fill the earth and subdue it. That's dominion, right? So when you read the first couple chapters of the Bible, this is the essence. God created everything so that he could charge all of creation with his glory. He wants to express and make known his glory above everything. And in order to do that, he created a means by which that was supposed to happen. 
He created a man and a woman, and he said, here's how you fill the earth with my glory. You come close to me in relationship, you live in communion with me, and from that place, you spread out and fill the earth as my image bearers. So he creates a garden, which is like a temple. It's a temple in Eden, and he puts the man and the woman there to tend it, to keep it, to work it, with the intent, purpose, that what is happening in the garden will fill all of creation to expand it out to the ends of the earth. However, the man and the woman rebel against God's commandment and they cause sin and death to come into God's good creation. Right, so they rebel against God's commandment. He tells them, he makes a specific command for them and they rebel against it. And in result of this, they are separated from communion with God and no longer able to fill the earth in accordance with his glorious design. Rather, they fill the earth with violence and wickedness, right? So they still walk out part of their calling to fill the earth. This is what they do. This is what we were created to do. We go and we fill and we subdue and we take, But apart from communion with the Lord, they cannot fill the creation with the glory of God. They fill the creation with perversion and wickedness and contempt and hatred. This is where in Genesis 6, you see the statements like, all the earth was full of violence all the time. Every thought of every person was only intent on doing wickedness always. It's like a lot of alwayses. So they fill the earth, but they do it with violence and sin. Genesis 12, fast forward a couple chapters. In the wake of man's rebellion, God comes to a pagan idol worshiper named Abram. We find that out from Joshua 24, that Abram was steeped in worship of other gods. God comes to him and he makes a set of commitments to him, a covenant, a covenant promise to him. He calls Abram and God promises that he'll give him several things. Number one, he'll give him offspring. He'll give him land and he'll give him a king. And this is implied in the promises to Abraham and it's expanded later when God comes and speaks about Judah and David, right? We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see that in the coming weeks when we get to 1 Chronicles 17 as well. But the choice of Abraham was intended to be how God was going to bring redemption to the world, right? As all the families of the earth would be blessed in him, God later comes to Abram's son Isaac, not his son Ishmael, and then from Isaac, his son Jacob, not his son Esau, and confirms these promises. So he says, I'm gonna bless the world and bring redemption through you. This is my promise. Number three, the exodus. So after 400 years in Egyptian slavery, God rescues the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to fulfill his promises to them. He breaks the yoke of their Egyptian captivity. He brings them into the land of promise. He fulfills his words to them. And in doing so, he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, right? So he sets out and makes another covenant with the nation as a whole. He had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now he makes promises to the nation as a whole, giving them the law. 
Now it's clear from the scripture, and you may not catch this on your first reading. Again, these are guardrails, handholds. As you read, I hope this becomes the language that you see and understand as you fill yourself with the word. It's clear that Israel is to function in some ways like another Adam, corporately. They're given a task. They've, they've been given like a new Eden, so to speak, a tabernacle. And the presence of God dwells there just like it dwelt in the garden. And they are to be a light to the nations, which is what? Fill the earth, subdue, let this go to the ends of the earth, right? This is the call that they have. So God takes his glory, he puts it in the middle of these people, and he, he, again, this is like the new garden, where God's glory is, and he gives them a law as a means to steward his presence, as a means to not experience the full measure of the wrath of God that is deserved because of sin. So, he sets out this way. Now, the rest of the Old Testament, after Exodus, is a case study. It's a witness of Israel's inability to fulfill this vocation before the Lord. Now, this is where Paul gets in and says things like, the law couldn't do this, right? Because what was always the problem was our heart, not just our behavior, right? Sin isn't just about the wrong things you do. It's the nature that you have that's in rebellion against God. That needed to be dealt with. So we see this portrait, even when given the presence of God, and a law to steward God's presence in order to fill the earth with the light of, of God, there is an inability. So because of this, God sends chastisement in the form of opposing armies. He brings redemption at times through deliverers and judges and kings, and he sends them prophets, people designed to proclaim the word of God, to call the people back to their intended design. Right? This is the rest of the Old Testament. Chastisement, sending foreign armies to uh, chasten them and discipline them. Redemption, deliverers to come and provide reprieve and seasons of renewal among God's people and prophets. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Look at number five. After several centuries of prophetic silence, God then sends his own son to his people. So in the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus show up on the scene and make this crazy, awesome statement. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what he's saying is the leavening agent that was always meant to expand throughout all the earth, it's breaking in. It's breaking into the world. What God is doing to bring redemption and restoration and the fullness of his promises, all that he wants is happening in front of you. It's breaking into the world. However, the manner that he was doing it did not come in the way that anyone expected. 
Nobody expected it this way, right? Nobody expected that the way the kingdom of heaven was at hand was the way that it did. Rather than come to restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel, God's people rejected him, leading to Jesus's execution as a criminal. So after three days, Jesus was resurrected as the first fruits and the inauguration of God's full purposes made known into the world, right? So the resurrection validates that Jesus was God's son. It validates that he was the offspring of Abraham. It validates that he was the king who was to come from David. It, came, it validates that his life and death were the ransom penalty for sin. And his resurrection was the victory over death. He was vindicated as what you could call the last Adam, as Paul would call him, who would restore humanity to its created place before God. Now those who join him by faith partake in his restoration of all things. Okay, let me just stop here for a minute. Jesus is not just providing a way for people to so-called like get out of jail. Okay, salvation is not just how do I not go to hell? Does that make sense? This isn't just like a get out of jail free card. That's not what salvation is. Jesus came to fulfill everything that mankind was meant to be when God created. He came to fulfill and make a way for God's ultimate purposes to be expressed in the world. That's what Jesus came for. So your salvation, yes, you get to delight in forgiveness. Yes, you get to have confidence that you're going to stand in the presence of God without shame, without condemnation for all eternity. However, God also sent his son to die, to be raised again, to ascend and send the spirit so that you might participate in how he is restoring all things. So he is redeeming and restoring your life right now, bears the seed of the leavening agent of the kingdom of God is at hand, broken into the world right now. That's what he has saved us for. That's what he's at work doing. Okay, so then we move to Pentecost and the inclusion of the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, Jesus births his church by sending the spirit upon 120 believers on the day of Pentecost. This ushers in the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the last days. This is what Peter stands up. Peter goes, hey, when the prophet said God's gonna work and when he's restoring all things, it's gonna look like this. He's gonna pour his spirit out on all flesh. Hey, hey, he's doing it right now. Let me interpret what God is doing to be faithful to his promises right now. This is what Joel spoke of. The days when God's redemptive purpose would be fulfilled in the earth. However, we can't miss this. This was also accomplished in a manner that was not expected. Rather than usher in the age to come in fullness right away, right? Jesus, how many of us would have written it this way? Jesus is raised from the dead. Last things happen right then. He brings in the eternal kingdom, establishes it right there. Be like, that sounds like a good plot. Jesus goes, not yet. 
I'm not going to do it that way. Not in the way that you would expect. Rather than usher that in in fullness, God inaugurates his kingdom and the age of fulfillment in part by giving the Holy Spirit to his church. This we can see from the rest of the book of Acts, the letters of the New Testament, and they will include welcoming the Gentile nations as full members into the family of God in and through Jesus. So much of Paul's theological writings, think Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, are an attempt to work out this idea. How is God being faithful to his promises? That's what those letters are about. How is God in the crucified, risen Messiah right now being faithful to his word? How is this happening? Right where it looks like it's failed. Okay, so that's our flyover. Now we're gonna do some work. What does this look like for remembering in the new covenant? You guys are just gonna have to turn the pages when you want. I have more here and I don't know where you're at. You're like, you have more? All right, I'm gonna give you, again, handholds. What does remembrance look like for us? Okay, number one. For us to invoke the name of the Lord, for us to invoke God's covenant faithfulness, we need to understand the primary fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness is accomplished and oriented in Christ Jesus. Okay, the summary statement of the New Testament of how God is being faithful to his covenant, the covenants that he started all the way back in the Old Testament. How is God making good on his word? Look at the crucified, risen Messiah. That is primary uh, step number one, handhold number one. How is God fulfilling his word? How is God staying faithful to his word? How is God accomplishing his word? Look at the man, Jesus Christ. God's son, come in the flesh, live, died, risen again. Look at him. Look at, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter one. All the promises of God. Say all the promises of God. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, okay? That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Again, Romans 3, look at here. The righteousness, an aspect of righteousness, yes, is right standing with God, yes, is being filled with the righteousness of God, but an aspect of God's righteousness is his rightness, his doing justice by his word. In the in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for any and all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified as his, by his grace as a gift through redemption that's in Christ. Right, so God's covenant faithfulness is demonstrated now in Jesus and in those coming into him by faith. All right, number two. Jesus is the full inheritor of the promises to Abraham. So everything that was promised to Abraham finds its locus and fulfillment and terminus in Christ Jesus. 
Paul clearly understands the promise given to Abraham was intended to be oriented to one seed. This is Galatians 3. To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it later once it's been ratified. Now, this is Paul's interpretation of how is God being faithful? How is God staying true to his word? Right? So when we read this and we go, remember your covenant forever, God. How are we to call upon the name of the Lord to remember his covenant? Look at this. The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now, it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, your offspring, who is Christ. So what Paul's saying is that all of the promises of the Old Testament, all the promises of God up to this point, they were looking forward to something. They were kind of funneling in toward one seed. One seed came, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now he is the holder of all of the promises. He is the one who gets to hold on to them. He is the yes. He is the amen. Number three, Christ's people, Jew and Gentile, are now the offspring of Abraham. So one of the remarkable realities of Christ's work is that it has torn down the wall of separation that one time existed between Jew and Gentile, and it welcomes them all into the family of God to be the children of God. So Paul declares that all who are in Christ are now one new man, equally his body, co-heirs of the promises that he has received. Okay, so who's the inheritor of the promises? Jesus. Now, Jesus makes his people the inheritors, the co-heirs of God's covenant faithfulness in himself. So look at Ephesians 3. This is Paul saying, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm about. I'm giving my life over. I've been called by God to this ministry. This is the mystery. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Look at Romans 4. The promise of Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's saying, what, what is he saying here? Look at verse 16. This is meant to be designed by grace as a guarantee to all of his offspring. Not only those that are adhering to the law, but the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Paul says, in Christ, Jew and Gentile become the offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3. This is so that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, number four. Israel was always intended to be a type, a new Adam that is fulfilled in Christ. They were given a mission. They were given an assignment. They failed in their assignment and it was fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus, right? The national role was always to be a portrait of a corporate Adam intended to be a vessel of God's redemption to the world. However, they were not able to fulfill this because of sin, disobedience, that's in all 
every one of us. Because of this, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment and representative of what is truly Israel and the redemptive purposes of God. This is the point of the temptation narratives. I don't have time to go into this. I wish I did. When you read the temptation narratives, Jesus is succeeding everywhere where Israel failed in the wilderness. It's very intentional. All of his quotations are meant to elicit from you. This is why we got to read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Deuteronomy, the quotations are, Israel failed at three specific tests in the wilderness and were given instruction of why they failed. When Satan comes to Jesus, Jesus uses the instruction of why they failed to combat him and say, I'm not falling for it. I am not going that way. I am standing. I am the yes. I am the amen. I am the one to where where everyone else has failed before. I will not fail. I will walk in the spirit of truth in submission to the Lord and fulfill redemption. This is also what Jesus is saying in John 15. I am the true vine and the father is the vine dresser. Okay, uh, Number five, the land was intended to be a, new, a type of the new heavens and the new earth. So the New Testament writers are abundantly clear that the parcel of land called Canaan was never actually to be the full extent of God's promise to Abraham. It was a type, it was a portrait, it was a picture, it was a shadow of something that God wanted to do globally and fully in Christ Jesus. The land was to function this way as a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Here's what we see here. Look at Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. And this is really important that Paul uses this word here. He uses the word cosmos, which is bigger than just land, right? There's another word in the the New Testament that's used for land. This is the word for the entirety of creation. So Paul goes, hey, the promise to Abraham was never just about a particular parcel. It was about sharing in what God was doing in the whole cosmos. This was the promise to be the heir of the world. All right, look at Hebrews 11 here. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, but he was a foreigner. Living in tents when he was there, it was, it was like he never had it. He lived with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of the same promise. But he was looking forward to a city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he's in the land of promise, and he has an understanding that this is not actually the fullness of what God has for this this place. They died in faith. They didn't receive the things that God had promised. This tells us that God's promise was more expansive. It was more comprehensive. It was more full. They saw them and greeted them from afar. Look at verse 14. People that speak like this make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because he's prepared a city for them. 
He's prepared a city. This is speaking of Hebrews 12, the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem that's, that is the entire recreated new heavens and new earth we see in Revelation 21. All right, number six. Christ is coming again to fully realize God's promises in perfect consummation. So Jesus will return again. He brings with him the new Jerusalem where there will be no more temple, right? The whole cosmos will be the dwelling place of God. At this time, the dead will be raised. The wicked will be judged. Those that are in Christ will enter into an eternal Sabbath rest of the eternal God. For all eternity, we will be with the Lord, enjoying the blessings of God's created design as we partner with him to image his glory to all the earth. So there is a day when Jesus is gonna come back and take the seed, the leavening agent that's in the world that is meant to be expansive and saturate and fill the loaf. He will come one day and he will raise the dead, judge the wicked, bring the righteous into everlasting life and peace and joy with him in eternity. All that are in Christ will be brought into the eternal Sabbath rest of Jesus forever and forever. So as the people of the new covenant, letter H, we are to remember the covenant faithfulness of the Lord primarily by rehearsing, delighting in, and proclaiming the life, death, resurrection, and coming of the Lord Jesus. How we remember God's covenant faithfulness primarily exists in rehearsing the gospel that God has fulfilled his word in the life death, resurrection, and the future coming of the Lord Jesus. This is the anchor for our hope. It enters into the veil of God's own presence in order that we might find help and assistance to remain steadfast by his grace, even in times of difficulty. Okay, I didn't get to my second part. We're 40 minutes in. I'm gonna pick up next week and we'll look exclusively at the latter part. I gotta stop here. I had to put the handholds out. I laid the, I laid the cords out. Next week we'll come and tie them or we'll try to. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, would you stand?